Welcome to the Holy Cross Sermon Podcast. This whole year we're exploring the life and teachings of Jesus in the book of Luke. We're in a series called Kingdom Life. We are looking at how Jesus taught believers to live. Join us now as we dive into another passage. A very effective method of trapping monkeys. The plan is really quite simple. They drill a hole just large enough for a monkey's hand to pass through. And then they add some extra weight to the gourd with sand or pebbles. And then they put a nut or some fruit inside, something enticing for the monkey, where the monkey will then find it. And here's what happened. The monkey sticks its hand inside the gourd, can get its hand inside. Then it grasps the nut into a fish shape and it can no longer pull its hand out of the, uh, out of the coconut. Okay? The hole is too small to pass through because it's holding on to this treat. And the gourd is too heavy for the creature to carry, so it's stuck. It won't let go of this prize and it becomes trapped. And the animal gives up its freedom just to hold on to this small piece of fruit or the nut. Well, it seems obvious that all the monkey needs to do is let go of the bait and then it can escape. But because it views the treat as its possession, it owns it, it isn't willing to let go and it's trapped and it loses its freedom. Now, if we're honest, most of us are like these monkeys when it comes to money and our possessions. We're captive to them. We're unwilling to let go. And we never believe that we will have enough. We're never content because we're bombarded with messages that intentionally fuel our discontentment. You may have this insert old possession, video game, phone, tennis, racket, stove, couch, car, home, etc., etc., But you need, no, in fact, you deserve, insert new possession, right? Xbox Extreme, iPhone 27, your Federer approved, guaranteed to make you win tennis racket, the self-cooking stove, if only. Well, in his book, How Much is Enough, Money and the Good Life, Edward Skidelsky writes this. Experience has taught us that material wants know no natural bounds, that they will expand without end unless we consciously restrain them. Capitalism rests precisely on this endless expansion of wants. That is why, for all its success, it remains so unloved. It has given us wealth beyond measure, but it has taken away the chief benefit of wealth, the consciousness of having enough. Consider the real-life example of John D. Rockefeller. Maybe you've heard of him. He was the man who started Standard Oil. And at one point, he was the world's richest man. When a reporter asked him how much money is enough, he responded, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. How many of us, if we're honest, feel the same way? Right? We look at our budget, we look at our income, we go, if only I could earn just a little bit more, then I would be happy. Well, we're spending the year going through the Gospel of Luke, and we've come to a section on money. And last week we saw that while our culture may tell us that we need to accumulate more and more wealth for ourselves, in God's kingdom the key to having what we truly need is in giving away what we've already been given. It's in giving away what we've already been given. Christians trust in God's provision. Christians seek the kingdom of God and not of man. And Christians give generously out of gratitude for receiving God's incredible grace. Well, today what we'll discover is that the key to having what we truly need is in giving away what we've already been given. 
Yes, the same point. (laughs) The key to having what we truly need is in giving away what we've already been given. So let's turn to our lesson and uh, our gospel reading for today and see what God would say to those who have ears to hear. You can follow along on the screens maybe if Dorian can pull that up for you or feel free to pull out your phones and turn to Luke 18 or Bibles if you brought them. Luke 18 beginning at verse 18. Now our passage today really breaks down into two parts. The first one is an encounter that Jesus has. And then the second one is an explanation that Jesus gives, an encounter and an explanation. It's kind of an object lesson for the teachers amongst you. Now, the encounter is with a man who has great wealth, and he's got really good standing in his community. Verse 18, and a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The term Luke uses to describe this young man, ruler, implies that he's some kind of Roman or Jewish official, probably political and not religious. So the equivalent might be someone who sits on the city council for Charleston, okay? And his political skills are quickly exhibited in the way that he addresses Jesus, calling him good teacher. This is most certainly an attempt at flattery, as teachers or rabbis are never addressed in this way. He seems to be buttering Jesus up in hopes of having his way of achieving eternal life justified by this wise and prominent teacher. It's almost as if he's seeking a political endorsement for his next campaign, right? He's hoping, much like when politicians wheel out some celebrity, that they will endorse him. And so he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Believing that he has, in fact, already achieved this. After all, isn't his wealth alone proof of his favor with God? Or at least that's what the Jews observing this would have believed. Well, having set the stage, Luke picks up the pace with Jesus going straight to work. Verses 19 and 20. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Seeing this young man's diseased heart, Jesus starts to do some heart work. He's like a surgeon with a scalpel. We've got incision number one. It's no use flattering me to seek my endorsement. Incision number two, if you could see who I really am. Incision number three, let me expose your deluded self-justification. Well, the young ruler is oblivious to what's going on. It's as if he's already had the general anesthetic prior to surgery, right? And so in verse 21, he responds like this. All these I have kept from my youth. Really? All of these? When judged by the commandments as interpreted by Jesus, no one can claim to be righteous. Now, you might think that's a little harsh. After all, you probably feel pretty good when you measure yourself against the commandments of God, right? For example, do not commit adultery. I mean, I have never slept with someone else's spouse. But Jesus says that even if we look with lust at someone else, we've broken this one. Okay, well, how about do not murder? We probably feel pretty comfortable with that one, right? There's, there are no skeletons buried in my backyard on Cartwright Street, either metaphorically or literally, all right? But Jesus says, even if you have anger in your heart towards someone or you've called them a fool, you've broken that one too. Okay, well, do not steal. Well, I did steal a piece of candy and maybe I've stolen some other things in, in the past, right? Maybe you have too. Do not bear false witness. Never told a lie, maybe? 
Honor your father and mother. Well, we don't have to even ask about that one, do we? We've all broken that one. So I'm 0 for 5 on half of God's top 10. And the other five, if I'm honest, are just as bad. And I'm guessing it's the same for you and the same for this young man. And as James puts it, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. No, no one can save themselves by keeping the law. We just can't do it. No one can keep the law. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, except for one person, right? And that person is about to reveal to this young man the root cause of all of his problems. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. You know, the root cause of his problems is his love of money. In our epistle reading today from 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writes this, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, often this verse is shortened and then misquoted. And we hear the saying, don't we? Money is the root of all evil. Ever heard that? Right? Money is the root of all evil. But Paul is not saying that. He is saying that the love of money is the root of all evil. You see, because money in itself is not evil. In fact, it can be used for great good. But it can also be a tool for inflicting harm both to others and to ourselves. And this is what Jesus is seeing in this rich young man. He's become like the monkey with the coconut, unwilling to let go of his wealth to the point where it is consuming him and separating him from God. Now, if this sermon was a Disney movie, which some of you probably wish it was, (laughs) we probably all burst out into a chorus now of let it go, right? Just let it go. But he just can't do it. He cannot let go. Luke writes in verse 23, but when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. The rich man loved his possessions more than he loved God. And his materialism indicated that he didn't love his neighbor as he loved himself, and therefore he was not a keeper of the law as he was asserting. He simply wasn't as good a man as he thought. And the radical claims of the gospel upon his whole life were too much for him to swallow. And ultimately, it was leading him to his ruin and his destruction. As one commentator puts it, it was from there that the man became a wandering star, lost, haunted by what might have been. I think it's one of the saddest moments in the Gospel of Luke. You have this young man who is so near and yet so far. He encounters Jesus Christ himself and yet he cannot follow him because of the idol of money in his life. Well, like I said at the beginning, this is just the first part of our passage. It's the encounter that we have, or that Jesus has. And it sets us up for the second part, which is a teachable moment for Jesus with his disciples. Jesus uses this sad encounter as an object lesson. And first of all, he highlights a problem. Verses 24 and 25. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
There is a problem for many of us because we are rich, or this is a problem, and therefore we are going to struggle more than others to enter God's kingdom. You see, when we have wealth, it often leads us to self-dependence, not God-dependence. Self-dependence, not God-dependence. Yes, we forget that we still need God, and we forget to thank him for the little things in life, like having food to put on the table or clothes to put on our bodies. And we start to believe the lie that we are self-sufficient and self-sustaining, that we did these things ourselves. And if we did these things ourselves, then surely we can make it into the kingdom of God by ourselves. After all, money can buy just about anything, can't it? Yes, wealth can be both a blessing and a curse. And it is not necessarily a sign of divine favor, as the Jews tended to believe. Well, next, Jesus gives his disciples a promise. Verse 26. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Perplexed by this upside-down teaching that Jesus is giving, the disciples begin to wonder, who can be saved? If the wealthy can't be saved, then who can be saved? Jesus' response is quick and definitive. What is impossible with man is possible with God. You see, salvation comes through the grace of God, not our works or our wealth, and therefore anyone can be saved. Anyone. Anyone who repents of their sin and believes in him will be saved. However, the evidence of that salvation will be a generous heart. Well, finally, Jesus encouraged the disciples that while, yes, this may be a hard call, he has a great prize in store for them, both in the present world and the next. Verses 28 through 30. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. You know, these verses have a special place in my heart. At two times in my life, the Lord has given them to me to encourage me that he will take care of me. The first time when I was fresh out of college and I left my hometown of Hereford, England, moved north about two hours to become a youth pastor in Liverpool. And I was nervous. I wasn't sure that I could leave all that I knew behind or raise the funds I needed to do it. And these verses comforted me and reminded me that God would always provide for me in abundance. And he did. The second time was when I was contemplating moving the much further distance of 4,000 miles to be a youth pastor at a small church on this little island called Sullivan's Island, South Carolina. And I was nervous to the point of not being willing to obey God's call. But he reminded me again of what he told Peter here. And again, I was comforted. And again, he provided for me in abundance. Friends, our God is not a stingy God. He is not stingy. He gives abundantly. If we're willing to trust him and give him everything we have, he will reward us far more than we could ever have been rewarded by holding on to the stuff that we have or to our wealth. Now, please don't hear me as preaching what's called the prosperity gospel, the false gospel that says that financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God for us, that they're inevitable. 
It is, this isn't what the scriptures reveal. In fact, they tend to promise hardship and suffering. No, the certain blessing that Jesus is promising will be love and joy and comfort and peace and satisfaction and pleasure that can only come from trusting 100% in God alone and knowing that he will always provide what we really need. This is the wonderful prize that he's offering. So yes, we all do have a problem But there's also an incredible promise and a wonderful prize for those who will follow him. Well, as we finish up today, here's what I hope you haven't heard. That having material wealth is bad in itself. All of us would be in trouble if this was the case because all of us in this room sit in the world's wealthiest 2% of people. Statistically, we are all in the world's wealthiest 2% of people. And the Old Testament actually holds up some godly rich men, people such as Abraham and Boaz and Job, and gives them as examples. And we're right to enjoy what we've been given. Now, what we need to be wary of is when having more money or stuff becomes the ultimate goal of our lives. When we put it ahead of our relationship with the Lord and our call to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is what we call materialism, right? Uh, it's the worship of possessions. It's a kind of idolatry. And as we've already seen, it's a dangerous disease that can easily take us captive. In his excellent book on money, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, which I encourage you to read, Randy Alcorn writes this, Seeking fulfillment in money, land, houses, cars, clothes, boats, campers, hot tubs, world travel, and cruises has left us bound and gagged by materialism. And like drug addicts, we pathetically think that our only hope lies in getting more of the same. Meanwhile, the voice of God, unheard amid the clamor of our possessions, is telling us that even if materialism did bring happiness in this life, which it clearly does not, it would leave us woefully unprepared for the next. So how about you? Are money or your possessions idols that have you trapped, even if you feel like you don't have very much of either? like a monkey perhaps with its fist in the coconut shell, unable to let go. In 2020, the year of the pandemic, we all know about looking for the symptoms. Well, here are some of the symptoms that might reveal we have a case of materialism. First one would be being in debt. Second one, working long hours so we can make more money. Third, always having to have the newest version of whatever it might be. Fourth, never being satisfied with what we do have. Fifth, an ability to give generously of our money or an inability to give generously of our money or possessions. And then sixthly, never thanking God for the things that we do have. If you check the box on one or two of these things, it may be time to just skip the test and go straight to the treatment. And the treatment will be this. First of all, to be rich towards God. In other words, giving sacrificially to him. A tithe is just the beginning in God's kingdom. A 10% of your income. That is just the beginning. And according to the analysis of data that Barna gathered between 2013 and 2016, practicing Christians of all denominations report giving an average of just $1,400 a year to their church. About 2.5% of their income on average. Which is like throwing a 20 in the plate each week. Secondly, be rich towards others. Always err on the side of generosity. 
Always err on the side of generosity with your money. Do not be stingy. Emulate the Lord God himself. And if debt's holding you back from being rich towards others, there are some great courses out there that you can take either online or in person. Things like the Dave Ramsey course that I would encourage you to check out. Thirdly, be grateful for what you already have. What is it we say? All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we already or have we given thee. Thank God each day for what he's given you to steward. And he's given you it to steward, but thank him for that. And then fourthly, be content. We heard that in our reading from 1 Timothy. Be content with what you have and don't make having wealth your number one goal in life, either consciously or subconsciously. It will destroy both your horizontal relationships here in this earth with friends and family and also your vertical relationship with the Lord God. I want to share a quick story to end. I know I've gone on a while, but it's worth it. I have a friend who is, um, works as a waiter. And just a couple of weeks ago, he got a very generous tip. It was a $1,000 tip. $1,000 tip. Can you imagine getting that? Well, this guy, he's like, you know, I did not deserve that tip. Didn't deserve it. He said, you know, I mean, you can argue whether he did or didn't, but he said, I didn't deserve the tip. So he shared out the money with the, the rest of the waiters and waitresses in the restaurant. They got their share, and uh, this guy had left uh, just over about $350, $360 left. And he called me up, and he said, Jonathan, I want to give it to someone who needs it. I said, well, I can't think of anyone who needs it right now at this moment. But if you give it to me, I'll tell you what, I'll put it in a fund that we have for people in need um, over at the Seven Farms Apartments. So I did that. Well, guess what happened? Next day, I get a call from someone else in this church, and they say, you're not, they say to me, there's someone here who needs a washer-dryer. They just really need a washer-dryer. There's various reasons. I'm not going to go into why, but um, it was clearly a legitimate case. And so I thought, well, I just got given this money of about 360 or so dollars. I thought, maybe that's what the Lord you know, wants it to be used for. And so I called up this guy who I know who does refurbishes washers and dryers and found out how much it would cost to get a washer-dryer. Well, guess how much it was? It was about $360, give or take a few dollars, right? This guy who got the tip had given generously, not knowing who it was for, and the very next day it had blessed someone enormously with this washer-dryer. Isn't that incredible? And I, I shared it with the guy who gave me the money to make sure he knew that his faithfulness to the Lord's call to give generously had been rewarded with the blessing of this family over at Seven Farms. This is what happens, friends, when we give generously of our wealth to others. The Lord blesses those, but he also blesses us in return. So be thinking this week, how could you be a generous giver? The danger for some of us is that we will leave this place and nothing will change. We'll be like the monkey with the clenched fist. You see, materialism is such a hard addiction to break. But the opportunity is here for us to listen and to begin to break free and to discover that the key to having what we truly need is in giving away what we've already been given. And as we do that, we grow in generosity. We grow in gratitude and also contentment, storing up treasure in heaven for ourselves where rust cannot steal it away. Trust me, doing this will be the greatest investment that you ever make. And you will not leave or not be left disappointed or wanting. Will you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. It's, it's a hard word, Lord. I, I know because money is something that is 
it's just a hard thing that we have to deal with in our culture. We are wealthy compared to the rest of the world, whether we believe it or not. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to be a generous people, that this church will be known for its generosity. Lord Jesus, I pray that we will respond uh, out of gratitude for what you have done for us upon the cross, something we could never achieve for ourselves, and that we will respond even with our, our bank accounts, even with the money there, that we will be known as generous givers, giving like you do, not being stingy, but being incredibly generous. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.